Well, welcome to the hills. And I know a lot of people are watching online right now. And we're a church with three campuses in Tarrant County and West Fort Worth and South Lake and North Richland Hills. And we're always delighted that you can come and see us if you're ever in Fort Worth. So for the second week in a row, I need to say, what about those Texas Tech Red Raiders? Let's give them a shout out. And I also need to add, because my father went to Baylor, how about those Lady Bears playing for the national championship tonight? I'm rooting for them as well. And I'm pumped because the next two Sundays are the two holiest and best Sundays of the year. Next Sunday is the final round of the Masters, right? I like to call it the Holy Week before the Holy Week, okay? And then in two weeks, we have Easter Sunday celebrating the risen Christ. And I'm launching a new series that day called Epic Grace. And here's the big idea. I don't care how big your fail was, God's grace is bigger. And so you're going to hear the gospel that day. And it's such a great day to bring a friend, to bring your one. So be praying about that. But this day, we're going to continue our conversation on race. And I just want to say thank you for the feedback I've gotten. It has been so encouraging. Every comment I've gotten has been respectful, kind, supportive, and I'm so grateful. I did a series on race 24 years ago at this church. In fact, I found in my file a copy of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and my picture was on the front page, and there was an article about the boldness of doing such a series. And I am grateful for the things I said. I believe the things I said then. But I didn't say everything I want to say today. Because I did not know to say them. This will be as hard a sermon to preach as I have ever preached. And I've known it ever since last summer when I began preparing for it. And I can't count the number of hours I've spent reading books, listening to podcasts, talking to people of color, and reading the Word of God and seeing things that have been there all along. I just had not noticed as much as I should have. This has been a hard sermon to preach. And it's going to be a hard sermon for some of you to hear. So I'm going to ask up front that you grant me some grace. I understand you're in a position of disadvantage because you're going to get in 35 minutes what I've been wrestling with for almost a year. You're going to be drinking from a fire hose today. So I know that. So grant me some grace and trust my heart. If you misunderstand something, if you're bothered by something, you know me. You know my love for you. You know my love for this church, and I'm going to ask you to listen non-defensively, and that takes courage. In fact, let's begin with prayer. And so, God, please help me these next few moments as I speak to be clear, to be kind, and to be bold. And please give those who hear me the capacity and desire to listen courageously. For Jesus' sake, 
Amen. So I mentioned several weeks ago, one of my favorite movies is called Remember the Titans. It's a story of a high school that was integrated and the racial tension especially played out in the football team. But as the players came together for the common goal of winning, they came together relationally. And the town enjoyed the success of the team, but what was happening on the team wasn't necessarily happening in the town. So I want to show you a quick scene where one of the white players called Sunshine is out with two black buddies, Petey and Blue. And please watch what happens. (laughs) Petey Jones. (laughs) Come on, man. No, man. What, man? It's on me, man. We party on. Let's go. Look look, look here, man. All right? This here, Virginia. All right? Uh, They got problems with, you know. They don't want us in there. No. Man, that's history, bro. It's on me. Come on. We're full tonight, boys. What? There's tables all over the place, man. What are you talking about? Well, this is my establishment. I reserve the right to refuse service to anybody. Yeah, that means you too, hippie boy. Now, y'all want something to eat, you can take these boys out back and pick it up from the kitchen. What I tell you, Yo, man? Come on, Petey, man! I didn't know, man. I told you what you mean you didn't know! What, you think I was playing man, with you? Man, he ain't no Petey. What Blue, he don't want to know. He didn't know. He didn't want to know. You see, I don't take back anything I've ever said in the past about race. I've believed it all. But so much of what I said was bathed in ignorance. And the question I've been asking myself this last year is, was my ignorance unintentional? Or how much of it might have been motivated by no real interest in learning. Because as a white male, I can live quite comfortably in this current culture with no penalty for my ignorance of the realities that people of color face. And so it's been very easy for me to conclude that if I don't see it, it must not exist. If I don't see racism, then clearly you must have a problem if you see it. And I don't think I've been alone in my ignorance. For many white people, not being called a racist is a bigger concern than actually learning more about where racism exists. And I have learned to cringe whenever a white person says, I'm not a racist But, because the rest of the sentence is almost always going to disprove the first part. And so, I know what God's future for this church is. I know what's happening in our nation. I know what's happening in our state. And I know if we're going to be a kingdom outpost, we're going to have to learn as a church how to embrace God's multi-ethnic dream and that means as a pastor i've got to have a bigger concern than not having anybody think i'm a racist it means i've got to actually learn more about racism and where it exists including places in my own heart that i may not have been able to see before and i cannot lead you with integrity toward god's dream 
if I don't humble myself and put myself in a place to learn things that I have not been taught in my past. And that has primarily meant listening more to voices of people that too often have been muted. Now, I don't mean by that I'm supposed to be the voice for people who have no voice. People of color have a voice. It means I need to listen more to their voice. So, for example, when the Black Lives Matter movement began, the immediate response of many was, hey, all lives matter. And 24 years ago, that's been the first thing I said. But this time I actually went and had lunch with people of color, especially black pastors, and just asked, when, when I say all lives matter, why does that hurt you? And what I learned was that when they say black lives matter, they don't mean black lives matter more. They mean black lives matter as much. And I thought that's how Jesus did ministry, that when he healed lepers, he wasn't saying lepers matter more. He was saying lepers matter as much in a culture that didn't always think so. That children matter. That women's lives matter. That the lives of tax collectors and prostitutes matter. And so what I've been trying to do in these last few years is educate myself to become more aware of those blind spots I have that have kept me from seeing And the primary way I've done that is just to talk to people of color, to have meetings all over our campuses with people and ask this question, I want to know what I know I don't know. Because that's where wisdom begins. To say, I want to know what I know I don't know. And they have responded when they knew I was sincere with grace and thankfulness, with profoundly helpful insights. And often, with raw emotional honesty. And while I still have much to learn, I think I'm a better man and disciple, and I hope I'm a better pastor. Because what I know now, that once I did not know. For example, now I realize I need to know more about the legacy of slavery. Now, I admit that most of this series has focused primarily on black-white relationships. And in no way do I want to diminish the importance of all my Hispanic brothers and sisters and the issues that you face. And I hope you always feel welcome here and know that God has a huge future for my Hispanic brothers and sisters at the hills. But I chose to focus primarily on black-white issues because number one it seems like it's where the most tension is right now in our country and number two while except for native americans we're all a nation of immigrants we all came from somewhere but there's one people group that did not come by choice they came in chains and it is our national sin and we've yet to recognize all the consequences in fact some would say our true national sin is greed. You see, the concept of race was created to justify enslavement. Now, I'm not saying there weren't slaves before. There's always been slaves, but before they were always a product of war. But in the 1500s and 1600s, people began to become enslaved as a product of a desire for profit. What we needed was cheap labor. And so, in the 1500s and 1600s, a 
concept was created called race. And people began to be classified as Mongolian or Ethiopian or Caucasian. And why did this happen? Well, who was doing the enslaving? It was white Europe, Christian Europe. How do you pass the moral test? How do you justify the enslaving of human beings for profit? And you do it by having so-called science convince you that some people are genetically less than. And so, for example, you might be familiar in school with the Three-Fifths Compromise. As the Constitution is being developed, and in our country, the number of people you have determines how many representatives you have in Congress. The southern states would argue, because of their slaves, we have more people, we should have more representation. And the northern states would argue, but their property. And so, it was determined as a compromise that we will count slaves as three-fifths of a person. And we must sadly admit that churches and pastors stood up holding Bibles and they endorsed and legitimized this kind of ungodly thinking and practice. So that even after slavery was abolished, the thinking that produced it still existed. You could change a practice with the law, but you couldn't change how people thought. And people still saw folks with color as less than. And that's why we have the horrible legacy of the Jim Crow legislation. It's why we had the growth of the Klan. It's why we had the thousands of lynchings that were never prosecuted. It's why we had the farce called separate but equal. And I can feel the tension in the room. And someone's saying, Pastor, don't put that on me. Slavery ended 150 years ago. I have never owned a slave. And I don't appreciate being held responsible. I don't think things should be applied to me that I didn't do. It's time for us to just get over it. But we're not over it. And in a way, we are responsible. You see, the Bible understands sin as more than an individual and present reality. Now, in the West, we value individualism. So we we see sin primarily as something a person does. But the Bible was written by Middle Eastern peoples, and they see everything much more communally. So in the Bible, sin can pollute a community for generations, which is why you need to repent of it, even if you didn't commit it. It's why in Joshua 7, one family can disobey God and the whole nation can be punished in the next battle. It's why when Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls and leading the people in revival, he lists all the sins of the people going back to Moses and repents of it. It's why, for example, in Daniel 9, verse 5, he prays, We have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. He is repenting for the sins of generations before him. Because the toxin was still affecting them. And our understanding of the gospel should help us here. Paul clearly says in Romans that because of Adam's sin, we all got judged. Because of Adam's sin, we've all been affected. But because of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and because of his sacrifice, we all get 
declared righteous. So, before you say, I don't want anything applied to me that I didn't do, you've got to understand, friend, your only chance to go to heaven is if something gets applied to you that you didn't do. So, while none of us owned slaves, we need to own the truth that slavery's legacy is still with us. And we can't build a better future if we are going to choose to remain ignorant of how our past continues to affect our present. And the primary way it does, I think, is the existence of systemic racism. You see, I used to think racism was only personal and intentional. It was just what one person did to another person, only if they meant to. And now I have a much better understanding that racism is so much deeper and bigger and wicked than that. What less than thinking has done is produce unjust societal structures that are hard to see if you never had to deal with them. Now, I'm not saying that every person of color has a hard experience and it's due to racism. And I'm not dismissing the importance of personal responsibility. And no matter how badly you may have been wronged by someone else, the Bible is clear you still need to choose to do what's right. Here's what I am saying. That systems of power do exist that diminish the possibilities for some people groups to flourish more than others. And it only takes a little homework to expel the the ignorance of that reality. How did I grow up when I did and not know about redlining. How late into the last century, by federal law, there were certain parts of our cities where you couldn't get a loan, where you couldn't start a new business, where upward economic mobility was forbidden by law. There was no opportunity. We created the ghettos of our nation. And then we sit back and we judge the people who have no opportunity for how they behave in them. Why did I not get taught about that? There's so much inequality that still exists in our structures, in our courts, in our prison systems. If you're a person of color, you're at a much higher percentage rate going to get arrested for the same offense as a white person. You're going to get convicted at a much higher rate, and you're going to be given a much higher sentence for the same crime. If you're a black young man caught possessing weed in a place where it's illegal, you're three and a half times more likely to go to jail than if you're a white young man with the same amount of weed. That's not right. Our school districts are still unequal. Mainly white school districts have $23 billion more dollars to spend this year on their kids than non-white school districts. And what about the marketplace? There's still inequality in the capacity to get a loan, to start a business, to just find a job. The University of Chicago and MIT in Boston did a study recently where they took the two big papers of those cities and they just sent in applications for jobs for 5,000 applications. And what they did on some is they put in names that sound white, like Brad or Sarah. And on others, they put in names that sound like a person of color, Juan, Carlos, Tremaine, Shanika. 
And what they learned in these two northern cities is that you have a 50% better chance of getting called for a job interview if your name sounds white. Now, didn't we all enjoy Kenny Hart last weekend? Wasn't he on fire? Now, I should know because I got swag, so I recognize swag when I see it. And he's got a lot of swag. He's even got a preaching cloth in his pocket that I may have to get soon. You may not have gotten to know his beautiful wife, Shanika, an amazing woman who grew up in poverty, lived her entire high school life in Harlem in a shelter, put herself through college. And I was grieved when she told me that her mother gave her the middle name Ashley because her mother understood when it comes time for you to apply for a loan or to get a job or to get into a school, Fill out the form and say your name is Ashley. It will open a door that calling yourself Shanika might close. Are there exceptions? Of course. But the exceptions do not disprove the mountain of data. And so, let's get real. And let's talk about the one subject that makes us more tense than any other. Law enforcement. Now you need to know that I back the blue. That I believe the overwhelming majority of police officers are dedicated and heroic public servants. And whenever I do hear about a shooting, I am slow to judge. Because I don't know what it's like to feel the pressure in a split second to have to make a decision that could mean life or death. And having said that, I wasn't shocked recently to hear a high-ranking state trooper say, there's some bad cops out there. Why should that shock us? And what other career path has the toxin of sin not infected? Okay? Most of our public servants are dedicated, but there's some corrupt politicians out there. Is there any group of people more servant-hearted than our school teachers? And yet we read regularly in the paper of a teacher that abused their trust and abused a child. And it grieves me most when I read about pastors and priests. And it seems like there's a new story every week. And here's why it hurts. Because I know a thousand pastors and priests. And 99% of them are dedicated men and women who live godly lives and just want to help people. But that 1% that abuses their trust and their position spews toxin all over the rest of us in the eyes of unchurched people. So I'm not surprised in a career as heroic as law enforcement. There's some bad cops. And almost every black brother I know has had an encounter with an officer that was not just. So our brother Kenny Hart told you that he came to Oklahoma to play baseball. That's where he came to Christ. He lived in Oklahoma and Texas for about two years trying to play baseball. He's been pulled over ten times by police officers and never gotten a ticket. He never was stopped because he was speeding or he didn't use his blinker properly. Every time the officer wanted to know, could he prove that he really owned the car he was driving? 
And why was he driving in that particular neighborhood? There's a dear brother in our church, a black man. Many of you know him and love him. Last year, he's at the Dallas tax office. He's in line to change a title on a car. He's been in line for 30 minutes. Officers walk up to him and ask him to come with them. They do not explain why, even after he asks. They take him upstairs to a room, let him know that a white woman has accused him of threatening to kill her. He said, that is impossible. I have been in line, and you can check the security cameras and see for yourself. But they did not listen to him. They believed her when she walked in, pointed right at him, and said, he's the one who did it. And now he is petrified. When he asked her to identify the car that the threatening man was driving, she misidentified his car, which led to more discrepancies in her story, which finally led to the officers dismissing him, not with an apology, but with a lecture not to threaten people. I would encourage you to go on YouTube and pull up Three speeches by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. He is a brother in Christ. He is an African-American Republican senator, which is three words you don't say in a row very often. (laughs) And after the horrific shooting of the police officer in Dallas, he went to the floor of the Senate and he gave the most stunning and beautiful speech honoring law enforcement officers. And gave several examples that were beautiful. But then in his second speech, he gave examples from his own life of encounters he had had that were unjust. To the point that three times the chief of police in D.C. has had to call his office to apologize. And when we hear stories like that, what many of us want to do is say, well, if they had only this, or if they hadn't that, stop it. Stop blaming the victims of injustice for the injustice they received. And if I'm passionate about this, it's because I've been reading my Bible. And you have to be willfully ignorant to read your Bible and miss God's emphasis on justice. Amos 2, 7, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. That same verse in another translation, they walk on poor people as if they were dirt, and they refuse to be fair to those who are suffering. Now, he does not accuse them of doing anything illegal. But everything they were doing was unjust. They were allowing conditions to continue to exist that benefited some and exploited others. Here's what I want you to hear. Justice is not a liberal word. Justice is at the center of God's heart. And he calls on his people to fight for it. There are powers of darkness at work in this world, infecting and corrupting any system and any place they can. And we need to ask God to help us see it so that we can address it and correct it so that all have equal opportunity. You see, just people don't just help the oppressed get out of the ditch. Just people want to build safer roads so fewer people wind up in the ditch in the first place. And for that to happen, the people in power have to see. And they have to care. And for a long time, I did not know 
of some of the power I had. So we have to talk about the reality of white privilege. To be privileged is to benefit from assets you didn't earn. It's like a set of invisible keys that you don't even know you have that open doors for you that may not be open to all. Now, already I can again feel the tension. Pastor, you have no idea how hard I've had to work. I came from poor roots. Everything I've ever gotten in my life, I earned. Nobody gave me anything. I believe you. Privilege does not mean that your life has not been hard. It means your life has not been hard because of your race. I come from poor people. I can show you on either side of my family the houses my parents and grandparents lived in. My father was the very first one to go to college. And you know how he went to Baylor University? He worked 40 hours a week at night at the Baird's Bakery. And I can never repay my father for the sacrifices he made to give my brother and life a better life than he ever knew. His life was hard. But it wasn't hard because of his race. He could enroll at Baylor University. When he was, if he had been black, they would not have let him in school. And he could not have gone to my alma mater, Abilene Christian University, and been allowed to enroll either. And he could get that job at Baird's Bakery. If he had been a person of color, he could not. What I mean by privilege is there are just things granted to me I'm not always even aware I have that make Life for me, more full of opportunity. I never get followed in stores. I have never had to question if I could afford it, if I could live wherever I wanted. I never get pulled over without a reason. Now, I'm going to tell you, your pastor has been pulled over. I am not going to lie before God and before you, okay? And every time I see those lights flashing behind me, I know exactly why I'm getting pulled over. But never once has the officer asked me if I'm really driving my car. I never have coworkers question whether I'm truly qualified for my job or did I get it for another reason. I'm never called on to speak for or defend my race. And I never have to figure out how to adapt to another culture so that I can thrive. In short, my privilege is I never have to think about my color. But I had a unique experience about 18 months ago. I was in Uganda. I was there to visit Livingstone International University. We got picked up by some missionaries, six white people in a van traveling to Mbali, where the school is. We drove past a police checkpoint. One of them picked up a walkie-talkie, and one of the missionaries said, uh-oh. And sure enough, within half a mile, there was an officer in the road doing like this, pulling the van over. And what I learned was that the common practice there, if you see a car full of white people, is to stop it. Just make up some reason why you're stopping them and expect them to give you money so that you can keep traveling. 
I was furious. It was completely unjust and corrupt. I had been racially profiled. And I asked, does this happen often? And I was told, it happens all the time. In fact, on our trip back, we hired a black driver and we had no issues. And it got to thinking, you mean if I lived here, I would have to think every single day, how does my whiteness affect what I might experience today? And what are the places where my whiteness could actually be an obstacle to my being treated fairly? And I thought, that would be so exhausting. And it's like the Holy Spirit said, yep, that's what I've been trying to teach you. You see, even thinking, why do we have to talk about race? Is an example of my privilege. Because if you are a person of color, you have to think about your race every day. Now, I don't feel guilty, even though I'm no longer ignorant. I'm not ashamed of my privilege. My brother Kenny stood on this stage last week and said he was proud that he was born with chocolate skin, and he told us to be proud of the way we, God created us, and I am. I am proud of my whiteness. I'm proud of my heritage. I don't feel guilty for my privilege. I feel responsible for it. It is capital that I can use to the glory of God to bless others. And I must, because Jesus said in Luke 12, from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You see, as followers of Jesus, we have the perfect motivation because we have the perfect demonstration of what it looks like. Paul said in Philippians 2, in your lives you must think and act like Christ Jesus. Christ himself was like God in everything. But he did not think that being equal with God was something to be used for his own benefit. But he gave up his place with God and made himself nothing. He was born as a man and became like a servant. Another version says he gave up his divine privileges. He used what he had. For the blessing of others. That's where I want to go. My journey out of ignorance. Has not been motivated by a desire. That you might think I'm cool. Or hip or relevant or tolerant. It's motivated by my desire. To follow Jesus. And it's required humility. Reorientation. Confession. And it's been so worth it. I want to know what I know I don't know because I want to do what I now know I can do. The more I understand, then the more I know for the sake of Jesus where I can take a stand. I can pastor more empathetically. I can vote more intelligently, especially at the local level in elections I often ignore. I can steward my resources more effectively. I can love my neighbor more compassionately. And most of all, I can use my influence more intentionally. And so can you. Because God has given all of us a sphere 
where we have influence. Fifty years ago, television history was made. Fred Rogers hired Francis Clemens to be the first regular person of color to appear on a children's show. And ironically, he hired him to be a police officer. Officer Clemens. And in one powerful episode that Francis Clemens did not know was coming, Fred Rogers takes off his socks and his shoes and he puts them on a hot day in a pool of cool water. The officer comes up for a visit and Fred invites Officer Clemens to take off his shoes and join him. And Francis Clemens for a moment was stunned. Show my black flesh, put my black feet on national TV in a pool of water with a white man's feet. But that's what he did. In fact, as the show was concluding, Fred Rogers took a towel and dried off Officer Clemens' feet. And he said what he said at the end of most of his shows, I like you, just like you are. And he was looking right at the officer. And when the show was over, Francis said to Fred, you were talking to me, weren't you? And Fred Rogers said, I've been talking to you a long time. And now you're listening. And that's all we need. We need a lot more listening to know what we know we don't know. It goes both ways. Now, I'm about through. And I'm glad because I'm exhausted. (laughs) And I can totally understand if you feel like you have been drinking from a fire hydrant. And if I have said something that was confusing to you, just let me know. I will do my best to try to clarify. If I have said something that angered you, I'm okay with that. But I ask you to do two things before you write me. I ask you first to pray, God, let your Holy Spirit expose why I got angry. And second, I ask you just to have an honest conversation with a person of color and say, tell me your story. Did anything my pastor said ring true with you? I'm excited about the future of our church and where God is going to take us. And next week, we're going to close with some thoughts about how we can go forward as a church. But this week, I want to ask you to pray every day that God will give you an increased desire to know what He wants you to know. Especially those places where you haven't known yet. I believe in you. I believe you want to know. And God wants to reveal. He's always willing to reveal when we're finally ready to listen. Let's pray. So God, I thank you for the gift of listening. And I have received that gift in this service. I'm thankful for the way I was received with grace. Please take these words, God, and use them for your glory. Show us more where we need to grow. Show us more what we need to know. And give us, God, 
an increased passion to see people, to treat people, to love people like Jesus would. We pray all this for His name and glory. Amen.